0: ABC Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music, and more. Sarah Davis lives for adventure. She's ridden on horseback through the Namibian desert, hiked to Annapurna Base Camp in Nepal. In 2019, Sarah became the first female to lead an expedition paddling down the Nile, traversing part of the African continent. She came face to face with angry hippos, was detained for crossing a border without a visa accidentally, and spent a night on a tiny island under armed police guard. If that wasn't enough, when she returned to Australia, Sarah was back on the water within months to tackle Australia's longest river, the Murray. Sarah has written about her adventures in her book, Paddle the Nile, One Woman's Search for a Life less ordinary. Sarah, hello. Welcome to Conversations.
1: Hi, Sally. Thank you.
0: Sarah, you you grew up in England and spent quite a bit of time uh, on the coast. How
1: important is that as a childhood memory for you, being by the beach? It's such a big part of my childhood and and the memories, like the real happy memories I have of just playing at the beach, in the water, on the wet sands, or, going windsurfing, it's just like I yeah, that's how I spent my summers as a family. We had a couple of beach huts down there near the very pebbly beaches, uh, and we just spend all our time there, and I loved it. And what about on the water? How were you getting around? What kind of activities were you doing? A lot of, from the age of twelve, I started windsurfing, so I loved um, doing that. Obviously, sort of being quite small, it was slightly limited as to what winds I could go out in. Uh, but yeah, would often go out. I loved being out on the on the windsurf. It was so much fun. What did the, the coast look like where you were? Look to me, growing up, I loved it. You know, it was you have the the pebbly beaches and and the groins and and the ocean there or the sea. Uh, obviously, I got a new appreciation of what nice beaches are when I came to Australia. Uh, my perspective has changed quite a lot. I've upgraded <laughs> and now it takes a lot more for it to cut. Like, yeah, that's a good beach. But for me, you know, it was all I knew really, other than the holidays we went on. And, and it was, I loved it. Some people are comfortable in the water, Sarah, and some are not. Where were you? Always pretty comfortable. Like, it was. You know, I think you know my grandmother would take me out in the in the slightly bigger waves and things like that. But it just always made to feel safe, and um, and so yeah, growing up, I never had any real sort of fears. But I was always careful. Like if I went windsurfing, you know, be looking at is it an offshore wind? Like what's it doing? Is it safe? So there was that sort of little risk manager in me. I think even at, at that age, were you a fearless kid? No, no, but was always. Like mum always encouraged me to try different sports and as a result I tried lots of new things. So I wasn't afraid of trying things, but I definitely wasn't fearless by by any stretch of the imagination.
0: I wanted to ask you about your mum, Sarah. What sort of influence was she on you, particularly trying
1: out new things and pushing the boundaries a little bit? From that, like trying new things and just always encouraging that, just set this sort of like confidence just to try new things and be curious and follow my curiosity and she also had a real love of travel and when she was in what you know i think would have been her probably her early 20s late teens went traveling around europe for six months with a girlfriend and that was a time where it wasn't like the rite of passage it is now and then in her sort of mid-twenties, went to South Africa. Some friends of hers had gone out there and she lived out there for a couple of years. And, and I used to pour over her albums and, and loved hearing all the stories about the snakes and the spiders and, and all of those things. And I think, you know, it's a combination of that, that love of travel and adventure and trying things just really set that up to be very much part of, of who I am. And it it was possible. Yes, absolutely. And to just, you know, not to be afraid of not knowing how, because it's like, okay, you can work it out and you can learn. Sometimes our parents are trying to rein us in, but it's kind of lovely she was opening the world for you a little bit. Totally. Mum's never held me back has always encouraged me to, to, yeah, to go at it and and try different things. And if it's something I really enjoy and want to do, then, then she'd, you know, support me a hundred percent. And, and obviously it's been hard as well because me going and doing that has, has meant I've left the UK, you know, I've come out here and I've gone on these crazy adventures, but as hard as it's been, mum's, mum's always, I think, trusted me. To do, the, to do the right thing. And if it's something I really want to do, she'd always back me and she's, she's never tried to stop me. And I, I'm so grateful for that. <laughs> After you finished school, you left the coast
0: uh, for the big smoke to study in London and eventually started working in the bank sector, but you started moving into to risk management. What is risk management?
1: It's all about, you know, looking at what the threats are ahead and potential opportunities as well. It's, I mean, I think we always think of it as quite a negative space, but it's it's maximizing potential opportunities and avoiding potential things that threats that could, could come up and, and recognizing what could go wrong. And it's other ways of reducing that happening or the likelihood or the consequence of it happening. And, and if not having an action plan in place to deal with it, if it does come up.
0: Why was banking not for you? I actually can't imagine you in the banking world, but how did you figure that
1: out? I mean, I got into it because I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grow up, and I think I'm still working it out, right? Um, but I'd watched all the films of, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street type films. <laughs> Obviously, we didn't have that back then. And the dealing was like, well, that looks like fun, and I'm good with numbers. I got a, you know, science, I got a degree in physiology, and it's like, okay, let's go and do that. And I, know I really enjoyed the environment. I have to say, the dealing room environment back in those days it was very, it was fierce and it was fun and I loved it, but it just, I wasn't a trader. I wasn't a salesperson. That's when I got into risk and it kind of, it worked from my analytical side. And that's sort of, as I talked about that little sort of risk manager in me, but it certainly didn't make me come alive, but I stuck with it. You know, it was a good career. I did enjoy it. Um, and I still do enjoy being, you know, part of it, but it was just that still, okay, this isn't quite me.
0: Why did you decide to make the big move halfway across the world to Australia?
1: Spoke to my boss and we'd come up for my annual review and, and he said, oh, you know, what, where do you see yourself in five years? And I mean, I've never been able to say where I'm going to be in five. <laughs> it's a terrible point. question. It's like, it? oh my goodness, seriously? I don't know. Hopefully I'm not doing this, but you can't say that in <laughs> review, right? Not here. <laughs> yeah. So he said, look, you could go into the trading side of things and I'd already sort of parked that as an idea um, in the area that I was covering and it wasn't the time to go into credit trading. He said, oh, look, I was working at National Australia Bank and He said, Well, alternatively, you could look at moving somewhere else geographically. And I was like, Okay, what's, I'm I'm interested in that. And he said, Okay, Australia. And at first, I hesitated because, you know, it's like this is going to be for two years. And I'd never been here. I didn't know anyone here. And it just felt like a really big move. And it was only when a friend of mine turned around and said, But, if you don't like it, you could leave after six months. And it was like, oh, yeah, it was just so compl- – I'm just naturally quite compliant. It's like, but I have to go for two years. And then it was like, no, I don't have to. And, and it was like, yeah, okay, this would be fantastic. This would be a great, a great adventure.
0: You eventually found your way to Sydney. What was it like starting off in the city of Sydney, not really knowing many people?
1: Well, I'd had, I did my first three years down in Melbourne and, you know, built up my friends and everything there. And then, you know, after three years, it was a move up to Sydney. And I found it a harder market to crack to make friends. And that was when I joined North Bondi Surf Club because I just thought, well, look, this could be a really nice way of meeting, one meeting like-minded people, learning new skills and actually doing some, some giving back to the, the community. And it was you know, it ticked all those boxes big time and just gave me so much more. What sort of sense of community did you get from being in the surf club? It was huge. I mean, I'd never expected to be living in a, you know, a capital type city and to feel part of the community. You know, I'd, I'd spent time in, in London and in near Brighton and you never really feel part of, well, I'd never felt part of community there. And then suddenly... Because through the surf club, you meet everyone through every part of the local community. You know, I would otherwise you're just going into the bank and you're meeting bankers and lawyers. It's a very slim section of of sort of society. Whereas here, you're meeting everyone. So suddenly, when you're walking around, you know you know the the policeman, the fireys, the the local person in the in the shops, and so you just feel that part of community. And then because you are. Doing something that's, you know, giving back and, and supporting the community, you know, again, you sort of, it just helps make you feel part of it and having that sense of belonging. And when you are away from your family, like having that sense of belonging is so important. And, and it really became, the surf club became my family away from from home.
0: You set off on the mission to get your bronze medallion, which is no small thing to do. How hard was
1: it initially, Sarah? I found it really hard because, you know, I'd grown up on a non-surf beach and they'd said to us, you know, this is going to be hard for you. You're not a surfer. Um, you haven't grown up in, in those conditions. And But I really, I really wanted to, to do it and... All the the like the dry stuff, the, the first aid, the CPR Is that was all fine, but found it very challenging in, in the surf. And, and I got to the point, like they were pushing us to go out in reasonable surf because it's like, well, there's no point in being really good at everything else if you can't get out there and, and save the people. And, um, and I got to the point going, I just don't think I can do this. And I spoke to one of my bronze instructors, um, Debbie, and said, Look, I, I just don't think this is going to be, I'm not good enough. And she said, no, 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 you are. We're just, we're pushing you guys and, and just keep going with it. And, and it just made it so much more meaningful when I did get, I just remember getting my, you know, red and yellow uniform and the quarter <laughs> cap um, and, and it was very exciting and it, it meant a lot to me. Did you have to carry out many rescues at North Bondi? Look, personally, I haven't. I know a lot of people have. I haven't done uh, a lot. Of, there's definitely been a few, but, um, yeah, not a huge amount. Were you frightened
0: the first time you were out in the surf, the big surf?
1: Yeah. <laughs> with the board. Like, I didn't mind the swimming, but with the board, it just felt like, oh, really I'm going to do more damage than good here. <laughs> so it took a bit of getting used to. Being at Bondi,
0: what are some of the sports that you started to become exposed to on the water there in terms of paddling?
1: Well, started off with getting into the competition. I was encouraged by a couple of other people there and um, started board paddling on the, for the racing board paddling and then the swimming in the, in the um, life-saving competition and soft sand running. And did that for a little while and and did like a Gold and a team where I did the board leg and I'd watch these people going out on skis and just never thought that that would be something I'd be able to do. And then again, it was just, something. oh, look, here's why don't you try this ski and took it out. And it's like, oh, OK, that's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. And, and that was when I started getting into to paddling.
0: So some of that stuff that happened on the beach in the UK of giving things a go in the water then
1: happened again. Totally. Totally. It was very much, you know, part of that. Yeah, okay, I'll try it. Why not? What have you got to lose? Why did paddling suit you, do you think? Oh, there's just something about being out on the water, um, that sense of freedom and space, and there's just that beautiful rhythm. You know, we I mean, took a while. To begin with, it was the most frustrating sport in the world because you just fall in constantly and you know, so I just want to be able to sit in it and enjoy it and then when I got to that point of being able to do it you know getting out there and, and watching the sun come up over the horizon you're out there with dolphins or like now at the moment with whales it's like it's just the most incredible playground and being able to do it just on a ski wing, just go off it's it's wonderful
0: and you'd had some injuries in terms of trying to be a runner so you kind of needed something
1: yeah, running had always like a well, not always, but from my through my late sort of twenties into thirties I got into the longer distance running and really loved that. And and probably defined myself a bit too much as a as a runner and then I um blew my meniscus and that was kind of the and found out I've got osteoarthritis in my hip from falling off horses as a kid. And I was devastated. Like I'd go just sort of driving along from Bondi to Bronte and see people running and knowing that I you know, wasn't going to be able to do that really. And I just like tears would just roll down my yeah. face. And I knew one door is shut and I knew another one was going to open. It just, you know, it doesn't, like, you want it instantly and it doesn't happen. And I just had to sit to it. And then I started getting more into the ski paddling. And then I realized, okay, there's the ocean ski paddling, the longer distance races, because I'm more of an endurance athlete and I, and, and it was life changing. It was like, it's the best thing that could have happened. You know, I got to go and compete on, on surf skis around the world and just have some incredible experiences and meet so many different people. And that was what ultimately led me to then go on these expeditions. So you started competing even at the
0: international level with the paddling?
1: At a master's level. At a master's level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no shame in that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, I was really proud. Like I got to have, for me, I got to have my kind of Olympic moment, you know, on on the podium and the flag, the Australian flag going up the national anthem. So, oh, yeah, it was incredible. That was up in Hong Kong.
0: What sense did you get of maybe being able to go further and do things beyond what you thought you could?
1: For me, I mean, a lot of that was having people around that just sort of almost suck you along. And, and open your eyes to what is possible and things that I'd never thought, you know, I would be able to do. And then having, you know, really good people supporting you. I had, you know, an amazing ski coach, Jim Walker, who took me and, and turned me into a way better paddler than I could have ever been, you know, otherwise. And and having those people around, that's what really made the difference.
0: So you're settled in in Sydney now, you're in the surf club, you're paddling, but you kind of want something more. What were the feelings that you were having of trying to reach for something else or do something else?
1: It was just this feeling like this isn't it and I don't know quite what is. I felt like, um, you know, life was amazing. Uh, I had a great job. I was working at Macquarie and it's like as jobs go and and organisations go, it felt like this is as good as it's going to get. But I felt like... The, the square peg in the round hole and and I was kind of contorting myself into a, a sort of a shape that fitted in. It was like having a beautiful piece of clothing, but it just didn't quite fit me or quite suit me. And I just, you know, it was a, a New Year's morning and I was watching the sun come up um, and just, you know, as you do reflecting and I just decided like, no, it's time for change. And I just, you know, as far as I was concerned, I had this blank canvas in front of me and I just wanted to be a little bit more creative with it and do something different. And I didn't know what it was, but it was at that point I made a decision that, yeah, I was looking for more and I needed more. How did the idea of the Nile come into your head, do you think? You know, I I saw, like through this process, I I did things. I read a book called The Desire Map, which is working at, you know, what are your fundamental needs and was doing a lot of self-reflection and reading different things and watching different things. And through the process, came across a couple of adventurers who'd gone and done first and, and these expeditions. And I've always read the books by, you know, explorers and adventurers, but what was very different with them was that they just didn't seem like your normal adventures the sort of the bear girl types or those that you feel have been climbing mountains since they could walk. They just, I could see myself in them, you know, the ordinary people who just had these big goals and, and backed themselves and went and did it. And so suddenly I could see what I wanted to be. And it's like, oh, yeah that's what I want to do. You know, I want to go on a massive adventure and, and, and an expedition. And it felt like I was listening to a voice that really had been whispering to me all along. Um, so that was sort of the, almost like the hardest part was, was that realization. Then it was like, okay, what am I going to do? And my ego really liked the idea of a first of some kind. <laughs> I knew it had to be paddling. So I started looking, you know, has someone gone around Australia? It's like, yeah, you know, Frey Hoffman head I paddled around Australia at that point. Um, and then, okay, what's the longest river? My geography is horrible. And so it was the Nile. I was like, oh my goodness, Africa is my, you know, go-to favourite destination for, for holidays and adventures. And saw that no woman had done, you know, source from source to sea paddling. And, and it was just, it was a visceral response of like, this is it. What happened to your body when that light bulb really went on for you? I could it just came alive. It was just like this buzz of, oh, my goodness, this is it. You know, that excitement, like deep within, it was, yeah, it was the ultimate aha moment. So when you come up
0: with a big idea for a challenge like that, there are two choices with your friends and family. One is that you keep quiet. The other is that you tell them. If you tell them, you need to make it happen. What did you decide?
1: Tell them because I wanted to create that sort of community accountability. I did, you know, a reasonable amount of research first. But it's it's hard. Like not many people have done these kind of this kind of expedition, and so I did read a couple of books, um, and then I came across through those books one person was mentioned, Pete Meredith, who has been on and supported a number of um, river based expeditions through Africa, and so I was I reached out to him, and he was great. He gave me some time, so he then gave me the, the all the things I needed to, to consider, and basically like the skeleton of the project plan of these are all the kind of areas I need to think of from the engaging governments through to when to go through to equipment and, and skills and everything else. And, and then sort of more research. And then, you know, when I I had that trip to go to Namibia, riding across the desert, tacked on a trip to go up to Uganda to actually, because I thought before I fully commit to this, I should probably go and look at the Nile. Um, And so I went there and I did four or five days of whitewater kayaking and speaking to people locally and, and it was that was like, okay, I'm committing to do this. And, and then after a little bit more organizing and getting things, my, my duck signed up. Um, I remember literally spending an hour with my finger over the post button on Facebook before I fully announced it of this was what I was going to attempt to do. It just felt like I was really putting myself out there, you know, and that kind of feeling quite sort of vulnerable with it, but knowing that, yeah, now I've got to do this. And when we're
0: talking about the Nile, we, we're talking more than six and a half thousand kilometers. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the the, the source of the Nile is still debated, um, but from the the source that I chose in Rwanda to Egypt, it was potentially going to be, yeah, over six and a half thousand k's. So, so.
0: the organisation, um, you have to plan out where you're going to start and how that you'll you'll do it. How complicated was the preparation?
1: Very. It was. And and I was coming from a point of having never done anything like this. So there was a lot to learn about. You know, something relatively simple. Okay, I need a satellite phone. Well, I knew nothing about satellite phones. So then you start researching. Oh, there's different sets of satellites. Oh, you need to check your coverage. Okay, the handsets are totally different to a mobile. There's different functionalities and, and things that you want totally different providers, different plans. So you've got to, you know, there's this huge learning piece before you can even make a decision. But at the same time, while it was incredibly time-consuming, it was also really rewarding because it was this feeling of learning new things and progressing and progressing towards a goal. I mean, there were times, yes, it did feel like I wasn't making progress, Um, but then I'd look back and sort of go, okay, how far have I come? And I'd look at what I'd done in the last week or month or You know how far I come, and it was like, okay, no, 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 I'm making progress. I'm making progress. So it was two years to organise, though. That's that's a huge amount of organisation. I was working full time, but then I ended up cutting to four days a week because it just, I just didn't have enough time. What about the political logistics? (laughs) I was always (laughs) like trying to line that up through what was it, six countries in Africa is always going to be challenging, and that's what meant that. At the time, South Sudan was still going through a lot of internal conflict. I knew getting north of Juba, the capital, was going to be unlikely. But I really had hoped to get to to Juba, and it, but it was it's out of your control. You know, you just like, well, what's the most I can do of this? And that's what I realized coming into it. And you know, the, yes, there were first off the back of it, but it very quickly. You know, it wasn't all ego; like led. It was far more intrinsic, sort of motivation, because it would need to be for something like that. What about
0: the physical training? What What were your thoughts on how you needed to get your body ready?
1: I I focus a lot on um, strength work in the gym and building muscle. I knew I had I maintained a good base with my paddling, and I had a really strong base from doing World Champs, and then I'd done Molokai, and and I just felt. The risk of overuse injuries and the fact that I would probably, you know, atrophy or catabolize muscle as I went, um, actually building that muscle. So you'd lose muscle, but, yeah. yeah. And and plus, I was going to be spending the first few months uh, rafting, two two months or so rafting. So I was going to be sitting in a kayak. So there's no point in you know spending ten hours a day in a kayak, um, and because it, it wasn't a race as well. I knew I would adapt on the expedition
0: how handy were those risk management skills in trying to pull this whole thing together
1: my risk register it was a piece of work it was awesome what's a risk register <laughs> going through and working out everything that could go wrong so i i and it was also really interesting having you know done risk management in the in a business sense and suddenly trying to apply those skills for a personal project i mean one made it you know it's very satisfying But it's like, where do I start? So I just broke it down into five categories of all the illnesses and injuries and then all the people-related incidents, so everything from, you know, approvals not being given through to more hostile um, situations, um, all the wildlife potential Risks there, of which there were plenty and all quite terrifying. Uh, then the, the risk of key equipment and then the environmental risks of rapids, heat, cold, storms, everything else. So then breaking those down and go, okay, what are all the injuries and what are all the illnesses? And then what can I do to reduce that? What vaccinations do I need? What meds do I take with me? And and then doing the training, you know, for me, it really helped fuel a lot of my preparations because then it was like, okay. I need to potentially do some self-defense work. So I did Krav Maga, which I loved. What's that? Um, It's self-defense training. So developed by the Israeli Defense Force, uh, just a form of of self-defense. So I did that for months. I did remote first aid, wilderness survival, uh, hostile environment awareness training. And as I was going through, you know, looking at all the risks, the, the risk of arrest or unlawful arrest, it was high enough that I felt I needed to have a plan there, but there's no standard operating procedures for what to do if you get arrested. And I didn't want to put it, well, I had a team of people ready to support me, you know, had um, financial power of attorney and things like that. Um, I didn't want to put that on them. So then I decided to engage the company that actually did my hostile environment awareness training, which is all about, you know, looking at the, what could go wrong in the countries that you're going through. Um, And so I had an operator who I would check in with daily, uh, who would give me detailed intel reports um, for the section I had coming up. They also had a cyber team, so they were looking at people who were following me on social media, keeping an eye out on dark web chat rooms and things like that for any potential um, threats there, which there were some sort of during, during the expedition, but... Yeah, so for me, you know, the risk management it it brought that whole thing where I'd always seen it as a bit dry and boring. It really brought it to life, and it was so valuable. And it was valuable also for unpacking some of the fears because I mean there was so much that terrified me. But by realizing, you know, the, the likelihood and the impact and how I could reduce the risk and, and action plans in place, it, it created those boundaries of what I was getting into and, and the confidence. Like, okay, I'm willing to take this on.
0: Broadcast.
1: Podcast. This is Conversations with Sally Sara. Find more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au/slash conversations.
0: Sarah, what were you most afraid of when you arrived in Rwanda, getting ready to start this journey?
1: I think the biggest fear was the dealing with the rapids uh, and dealing with the wildlife. Those are probably the two things that really did worry me the most. You know, even when I got to Africa, I still didn't have my team because as much as I tried to find the right people, I hadn't been able to. I still didn't have all the approvals It all came together quite quickly, then got to the source. So then it sort of, it all felt quite rushed and we had so many problems getting to the source. We had all these car problems and then suddenly you're there and on the river and it's just like, oh my goodness, like there's so much that could go wrong. And I just felt like all the gear and no idea. And you know, you sort of got this Rolodex (laughs) in your mind thinking about what have I not thought of? What have I not got with me? What have I not (laughs) tested? But then it's just like, okay, you just got to roll with it and take what, what comes up.
0: What was it like
1: getting into the water
0: on that first day and heading off?
1: It was an amazing feeling. You know, we we got down, we'd gone to the source on the on the one day and then the next day we put in and found a point where the river was going to be wide enough to to put the raft on and and coming into it, I was still really apprehensive. But that moment when I saw the Nile and I saw the point that we were getting to was going to be fine to put in, it was just like all that apprehension just melted away and it was wow this is it it's happening you know the two years of getting to this point and you know we spent the time inflating the raft and putting everything on everything had to be tied down and we launched it we had a huge crowd around us like the locals um it was Umagenda. i hope i said that right Umagenda day which is every i think it's every third or fourth saturday in the month the clean up day yeah the clean up day which is why you know Rwanda is so beautifully clean and everyone stops and cleans up or digs ditches or helps build the schools whatever is needed in the community so there were lots of people out and about, and they said that this constituted, we're <laughs> going to say, watching us <laughs> staring up, at and you. I'm like, I'm not sure about that, but okay, <laughs> this is a wonderful send off. And so we had all these people around us, and then you know we we put the raft on the water, and we you know I just remember that moment of taking that that first stroke, and we had all these kids running along <laughs> the banks, screaming and and shouting, and it was just like it was the most perfect send off, and. And this feeling of like, wow, you know, I've actually made this happen and it may sound crazy, but even if it had just been for one day and it had finished after a day, it would have been enough because it was just so huge to get to that point and make it happen.
0: Had you factored in just how much attention you were going to get and how much people were going to stare at you and look at you as you're undertaking this journey?
1: No, I did not expect this to be anything like as entertaining as people found it to be. It's like, I don't know, this is just someone just going off paddling. But yeah, you know, I know there's one night we we stopped and it was raining and it was terrible. And we'd we'd had to portage, like go around this bridge that had sort of collapsed. And it wasn't worth getting back on the on the river, so we stopped and it wasn't long before the entire village was surrounding <laughs> us. And we'd put the raft up against this bamboo to try and act as a as a bit of a protection from the elements. And I started cooking dinner, which is just some some rice, and just had this group just crowded. Sort of claustrophobically around us. Um, it was bizarre. And it's like, why are
0: you this? So, Sarah, you had a local team with you, and then on the other end of the SAT phone, you had Dave, uh, the okay. security consultant that you'd call into every day.
1: Yes, yeah, so every day I would message him. Most of the time, it would just be a text message and give him a rating on a one to five one good, five bad on how I was from a security, health, supplies, mental state, and comms basis, and would then give him like what the plan was for the day, and then he would send back uh, a detailed intel report. I mean, depending if it was just uh, you know text messages, then. It would just be what, what I needed to know. If I had access to my emails, then I'd get a longer report. And it was amazing. Like the detail that he had was extraordinary. So he was a pair of eyes kind of watching over the whole thing. And also, you know, as someone that I could bounce decisions off because I've never done anything like this and there were some fairly big decisions to be made. And so having someone who I absolutely trusted, who one, I could bounce decisions off with and two... Who I knew would call it for as being reckless because I just didn't want to be that sort of adventurer who goes off and and then they have to send the cavalry to come and rescue. Although they kind of did, but but I knew you know he would stop me doing something reckless. And because I think we can get very caught up in the in the goal and that sort of summit fever type thing. And I just I didn't want that. And he was yeah, it was just having that advice all the way. You were a a few days into the
0: expedition when you encountered some hippos. What happened?
1: This was on day six. And, you know, up until that point, we'd just been getting into the swing of things for me. Yes, I, you know, used, had a go using all the equipment, but it's very different from when you're actually using it in situ and us all getting to know each other, you know, them getting to know me and, and vice versa. And we'd pulled up quite close to Kigali, the capital of Rwanda, and got up the next day. And I just heard this hippo making its way upstream. You could just hear the sort of the guffaw of it as it was going past. I was oh, no, okay, well, we've, we've reached hippo territory. So there was a certain tension. Like, we'd all heard it. We didn't really acknowledge it verbally got going and we came to our first pot of hippos and got round them and that was fine. There were just a few of them. And then we were coming coming up. And so the river there, it's its not that wide, so maybe, I don't know, 50, 70 metres wide, very silty, so you certainly can't see what's under the water, short, steep banks and very windy. So, again, you can't really see what's ahead. And so the way we were set up, we had someone on the oars. So you had a set of oars and a frame on the on the inflatable raft Two of us up front paddling and then someone just sitting at the back and we also had a a white water kayak so that if we did come to rapids, Cole would go and scout the rapids to see if there was a line we could take. But we were all in the raft and we were coming up to this left and then a right. And as we came up to sort of begin to turn left, we saw this baby hippo pop up in the in the far corner. And so we stopped rowing and paddling. But, of course, the river then's just still taking us. You've got the flow. And I literally just got the words out of where's mum? And she pops up on the right and we've gone between her and her So you're,
0: you're between mum hippo and
1: baby hippo, which is <laughs> yeah. exactly the place you do you not really want to be. You don't want to be. It's like, oh, we messed up big time. <laughs> so she, not surprisingly, wasn't overly impressed with that. She came at us. She put her head under it. It looks as though she tried to flip us. That didn't work. We're still trying to get to the riverbank to get away from her. And then I just remember feeling this like this tug on the back of the raft. And I looked behind me and there she was. She'd bitten into the back of the raft. Luckily, she let go. I don't know whether it was the pop, the air. She realized she was a long way from her baby. We were then able to get to the riverbank, get out. She paused. She wasn't coming on us anymore. And then she moved away a little bit, so then we were able to get everything, unload the raft, pull the raft up. So did it, it sink, start to sink no. the raft, or was it compartments? It's compartments. So it was just that one compartment that went down, thankfully. Um, and there were some local guys who were helping us get all our stuff off, and you had a, a hole in the raft. It was it was literally like 40 centimetres long by about 10 centimetres wide. powerful animals, aren't they? Massively, mm. massively, and... At the time, you're so much in because it's just that real primal, I've got to get away from this, so sort of action-focused. But what was then terrifying, it's like because you deal with the situation you're in, but then it's like, well, we've got to get back on the water Mm. and we've got weeks of dealing with this and that was absolutely terrifying. That was really hard. And, you know, there's that that statistic there that
0: uh, hippos kill more people
1: than than lions. They are a real threat if you're in the wrong spot. Mm. Huge threat. Um, so the thought of, yeah, getting back on the river, uh, there was a part of me I did have to check in with myself and go, do, do I want to continue? And and it was as soon as I thought, or do I stop? And, again, it was that first response of, like, no, I want to keep going. And Peter, one of the guides, he was amazing at coming up with alternative solutions in pretty pressurised situations. He just kept so calm under pressure. It's like, oh, my goodness, what are you, I want some of that. And he said, okay, what we'll do if we come up against more hippos is if we can, we stop when we see them, we get off the raft, we get onto the riverbank and we just tow the raft past. And and that really, you know, having that plan helped and and then, you know, just wanting to do this trip was really what got me back on, on the water. And it was within an hour we, we came across another hippo, it was a, a male, and he put on this psychotic display But we did, you know, we stopped, we got off, and and that worked. But we couldn't, I mean, we still had a lot of incidents with hippos, none quite as bad. But where we could, we got off, but we couldn't always. Not all that long after the hippo
0: incident, it's very hard on the river to know exactly where you were, You accidentally crossed the border into Burundi. What happened?
1: So we were coming up and the the river was going to turn into the Akagera River and there were multiple channels to choose from and we were right on the edge of a lake there which was right on the border with Burundi unmarked border because it's going across this lake. While I had my GPS, it didn't show all the channels, didn't want to have to go down the wrong channel and back paddle in a raft. It's not great. So we asked some local fishermen and these guys came over. And I was just a bit sus because the guy in the front of this, it's a dugout canoe. These fishermen are, you know, poor church mice. They've got, you know, holes in their T-shirts. But this guy had like a nice T-shirt on and shorts and a schmick kind of haircut. And I just remember looking, oh, that's different. And he said, look, come this way. And in doing so, he actually led us across this unmarked border. And then he said, wait here, I'll call my friends and they'll show you the way. So he put the call in. The next thing we know is this this tinny coming across the other side of the lake, submachine gun on the front of it, three guys clutching their AK-47s. They were the the army, the Burundian army, and they checked our paperwork. We didn't have visas to be in Burundi because there was no plan to be there. So then they told us to row across the lake. So as we were doing that, I then sort of kick off the plan, which was to let Dave know. So I messaged him through the GPS just to let him know what was happening. But yeah, then we were led across the lake and we were questioned. So did they detain you for a while? Yeah. So the the army were quite happy to let us go. I mean, they went through everything. We had to unload the raft to the point that we were opening up, having to show them unopened boxes of matches. Like, they wanted to check everything, I guess, for contraband. And then it was the police. I spoke to the, the guy in charge of the army. He was like, look, well, you'll be on your way soon. But the local police decided that, no, that that wasn't what they wanted to do. So we were told to load everything up in the back of a ute, which had sort of the benches on the back. We were then told, right, you're being taken for more questioning. So we were loaded up on the benches on the back of this ute and armed police guard on, on each corner and... Next thing, I was like careering through the Burundian countryside to the police station. This, I just believed this was going to be fine. And we we stopped at one point, and and I said, "Look, it's getting dark because we still it was an hour and a half drive." And I said, "Look, the guys are all going to get cold. Can we get changed?" And uh, they said, "Yeah, fine." And when that was true, but I also knew that I'd be put in a room on my own, and I could get another message out to Dave to let him give him an update on what was happening. So I did, which all felt very exciting and like, yes, getting it done. And then we were off again and then taken for more questioning. And and then we were told, right, you're being held, but to, at a hotel. So we were given like a minute to grab our things. And I'd still like, they'd taken all our, our passports, mobile phones, laptops, all of that stuff are gone, but I've managed to keep sort of hidden on me the satellite phone and the GPS. So I kept that with me and we went to the hotel. I got very excited when I saw a bathroom and then I saw this 15 litre jerry can next to the shower. I was like, oh, okay, we won't be having a shower after all. It was pretty basic. And that night under sort of cover of darkness, I literally commando crawled out onto the balcony because it was the armed guard across the road making sure we weren't going to escape, although I mean where how far I could carry? <laughs> <laughs> a white woman with no passport, not that much money, quite limited. But anyway, and put a call in to Dave and, and hearing his voice, that was really reassuring. He was like, Look, work's underway to, to get you I just be very compliant, which we were being and and just go with it.
0: What happened to your gear while you were being detained?
1: Most of it was was fine. So, so after a couple of days they agreed that they would release us. It was all very tense. So like getting to the border, it just felt like it could turn mm. very very quickly. And and it was really brought home to me that as we were heading towards the the border, a call came in for one of the guys and then they passed me the phone. I was just like, "Why are you passing me the phone?" It was the British consulate, and one of the first things I said is like, "Have you been hurt? Have you been threatened? Have you been harmed in any way?" And I had a couple of calls with the the FCO, the the British sort of consulate, and they always asked the same question and, and did seem surprised when I said no, everything was was fine. So then, yeah, we got to the other side and, and we were released. And and then as we got going. After a couple of days, started to notice things that had disappeared. <laughs> um, the toilet paper gone. Little bit of meat that we had had gone. They tried the tin of baked beans. Obviously, didn't like that and just left the baked beans <laughs> oozing in one of the dry bags, which is disgusting. My thongs had gone. The knife off my PFD, my life jacket. So yeah, there was. It took, but it took days for us to realize. Hang on, I haven't seen that. Or I would go. <laughs> So where's the knife when you appear? Oh yeah, that's cool. (laughs) But nothing major, like, you know, my camera and all of that stuff was still there. It was fine.
0: Those situations when authorities come in, especially in those remote locations, there's some very serious things going on, but there, sometimes there can be a sense of performance as well. I remember we got detained as a film crew in South Sudan and got told we were being taken to the police commander. Our names would be taken, but there was no stationery out there, so all he had to write our names in was a small notebook um with a, a pony on the front of it, like it was a pink little girl, so <laughs> we were terrified of getting our names taken,
1: but when they were taken, it was, it was like, just oh. in that little notebook, so you never know and this you don't know you know the the rules are very, very different, but i I don't know it just it never felt like a threatening situation mm. i it could have changed quite quickly, obviously, but it it never. And it was, you know, it was a really great, crazy to make sound, but a bonding experience for all of us, because, you know, when you're dealing with that kind of adversity is, is very much, you know, it brings you together. And I got to spend time individually chatting to the guys and getting to know them more and getting to know their backstory a bit more. Yeah, we'd had this sort of shared suffering, as it were, which brought us so much closer together as a team when we then did get back on the water.
0: When you got further along, how did you handle Sudan and South Sudan because there's some security issues there?
1: The intel that came through Dave or that Dave got was that the South Sudanese, like the National Intelligence Security Service, were quite sus about me and what I was doing. And I kind of get it, you know, it's a country that's gone through conflict for, as you know, for such a long time the concept of doing something for sort of fulfillment or whatever, it's like not even on the radar. So it's like there must be an ulterior motive. You're a journalist, you're a spy, there's, there's something here. And the British concept, when I'd spoken to them, had said, if anything happens in sudan we can't help you. You are on your own. And as much as it you know, I hated not being able to do any part of South Sudan. It just felt that that was going to be a step too far and that was sort of getting into that reckless because being detained, it could be for an hour, it could be for a day, a week, you just, you don't know. And that doesn't just impact me, like the, the ripple effect from that is family, friends, consulates, you know, the Australian, British government, and then it's the people that want to come after me and do similar things. So I made the call that I would skip South Sudan and I hope. I really hope that one day I can go back there and, and do South Sudan. So instead, I um, spent Christmas in Uganda. You know, I spent so much time there and, and it was beginning to feel like Beautiful a second country. home. Oh my Beautiful. goodness, I love it. And I'd made such good friends there. I haven't spent quite a lot of time. There was a lot of prep time before and after and between sections. And so I had a lovely Christmas there. And then I flew up to Sudan. What's the countryside like as you're paddling through Sudan? What's it look like? obviously so different. I mean, this is the shame of not going from getting to go through South Sudan of seeing that sort of slightly more gradual transition. So I went from very, you know, green, lush uh, Uganda to the Sahara and and very much flatter. But I loved it, particularly in the section when, you know, we started off down near the South Sudan border and came up to Khartoum. So that was the first stretch. And that was a great little sort of warm up getting into the way of things and back into kayaking and my body adjusting to that and then it was like the big section was going from Khartoum up to the border with Egypt so that was about 1500 k's Um, but then going up through and paddling through the Sahara was just this surreal kind of experience you're in the biggest hot desert with these dunes at times coming down to the water but then you're paddling through it it was it was beautiful I love the desert
0: the journey continues You go from Sudan into Egypt. How do the sights around you change as you start paddling along the Nile in in Egypt?
1: It's a lot more built up. I mean, not massively built up, but you've certainly got more buildings, more people, uh, as opposed to being very, very remote. You suddenly didn't feel remote anymore.
0: What's going through your mind as you're getting days closer to the end of this incredible journey were you ready for it to finish or did you
1: kind of want it to keep going for a while there was such mixed emotions and then when it got to that last day i you know i woke up that morning just feeling really emotionally wobbly and i really had to look at myself in the mirror like sarah get it together in what way wobbly how just i don't know it was just this almost not certainly not mental breakdown but just that really emotionally wobbly and and weak, and it was I didn't know where it had come from, and I think it was just so close to the finish, it still felt like a mess. Even though it was the shortest probably day I'd had for the whole expedition, it felt big. But then when I got down to the river, and I saw it, it was a beautiful day, and it was sparkling. And I was like, oh no, this is all good. I, I'm going to bring this one home. And I just I didn't listen to any music. I just literally just took in every paddle, every stroke. And then I could start to smell the sea air, like the Mediterranean. What was that like? Like coming home, you know, it was like smelling the sea air. It was like finally some salty water, you know. <laughs> None of this freshwater rubbish. And then I could see, you know, unfortunately I couldn't make it out to the med. Cause, well, for one, it was huge surf. And I got to a point and and I called it. You know, I was relieved in that day. and And the next day it was this real mix of emotions of happy to have finished it and achieved it. Relieved, also that I was like, no more problem solving, no more dealing with issues. But also, there was a grieving. I, I was, you know, when I saw the the Nile, literally, as the taxi was taking me to the airport for the last time, tears just erupted. It just from from nowhere, and there was a grieving. Like the Nile had been my my purpose, my life for the last two two years of planning, and the six months I spent on and off the river in in Africa. Uh, it was sad to be saying goodbye to it. You were paddling through some very difficult parts of
0: Africa where life for the local people can be really, really hard. How did you get your head around having adventure and seeking hardship through an area where a lot of people have hardship, whether they like it or not?
1: This was one of the reasons why I was raising money for Care International because it was like going through these countries where people are dealing with such hardship and lack of opportunity and wanting, one, to raise money and also raise awareness and share some of the stories of the people that I spoke to and, you know, because you just get this totally different perspective and appreciation for, for, you know, for the life, the the opportunities that I have. And and when you see these people who have got all this potential but there's just no opportunities there And, and it's the heartbreaking stories that you hear. Does all of that sit comfortably? Oh, not always. You know, when you're sort of rocking up there and I've got all my gear and and I get to choose to go and do this, it, it, it felt uncomfortable, definitely, at times. The only way I could try and make it feel a bit better was to try and give back. But, yeah, it sort of just felt unfair. We've been
0: talking a lot about the, the magnetism of this sense of Adventure, that's what you're going towards, but you're also going away from something, and that was sort of ordinary daily life. What do you think about ordinariness and whether you fit in that or not?
1: You know, when I came back, it was nice to go back to schedule and routine. And I think, you know, it's it's enjoying a bit of both, you know, learning to create the purpose in what I have on my everyday life, but then to be ready to know this is then the platform that helps me then go off and go on and do more adventures.
0: Do you think that restlessness will stay with you? Yes,
1: I think so. I just, even if it's, you know, it doesn't always have to be the massive adventures and expeditions, but just that wanting to go and explore and experience different things and meeting different people, getting different perspectives. I, yeah, I'm just drawn to it. What's the biggest lessons that you
0: took away from the Nile?
1: Um, there were quite, quite a few lessons, a lot of lessons. Uh, I think definitely one was control the controllables. You know, there was so much outside of my control because I could find myself stressing about things that like I was stressing about. There were hippos ahead, and it's like, so you can't change whether there's going to be a hippo around the corner. You've done everything you can to set yourself up for success here with a choice of being in a raft, with the people you have around you, with the plans you've got, accept it. The importance of you know taking risks and taking taking the finding the right risks to take, learning to face my fears, the power of purpose. That was a big one. Like you know, getting back on the river after that hippo attack. It was just wanting this. This being such a big, having such meaning for me, gave me you know this was that bit of courage I needed to get back on the river. So you know, it's finding that that purpose that will drive me to go above and beyond. It's an interesting relationship
0: between risk manager you and adventurer you. It sounds like you almost have to switch
1: one off sometimes <laughs> to be able to do the other. It's true. It's yeah, definitely because one, you know, if risk manager Sarah takes takes over too much, that we, you know, you don't go anywhere. But so it's just that 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 balance and acknowledging, you know, I've I've, I've learned to accept that. Yeah, it's okay to to be afraid and. And it's just finding those things that I'm willing to push myself beyond, you know, those things that, that scare me. What's all this
0: been like for your uh, family, uh, f- being brought up to enjoy, get out there, try new things and take risks? That can be difficult for a family when you actually go out and do it on this <laughs> this scale. Careful, careful what you wish for.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think for mum, you know, oh, look, she was she was amazing and she, she certainly seemed to deal with it pretty, pretty well. But it's the, you know, not knowing when she's next going to speak to me and we'd always finish it. She said, don't ever tell me when you're going to, call me next. Just say, we'll talk soon. You know, and I, as much as I could keep her updated with messages and where I am and what I'm doing. And there were times when I couldn't, you know, then Dave would send her a message and let her know what was going on. Yeah. I don't think it was, it was easy.
0: That's a, a really generous thing that she did for you when you were little. That's a special kind of love to kind of give your kid that permission to, to try new things mm. and, and maybe it might end well, or maybe it might not for
1: them. Oh, it was a gift. It's an absolute gift. And I'm very grateful to her for it. What's next, Sarah? Oh, so many things I want to do. <laughs> Look, I've got a long list of, of adventures. I've stepped back from doing the, the corporate work and now building my own business. So it's getting that going so that then I can go on, on more expeditions. So I definitely, there will, there will be more. Watch this space. <laughs> Sarah, thank you. Thank you, Sally.
0: Sarah Davis
1: was my guest on
0: Conversations today. I'm Sally Sarah. Thanks for listening.
1: You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations.